From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. This show will be the final one in our series on collateral-based or asset-based lending. So if you missed some of the prior shows, they are all in the archive, and I think you'll find each of them very valuable. Later in this show, I need to answer the question I posed at the very beginning of the series. Not all loans are asset-based. Some are backed by another type of collateral. For that matter, it turns out the vast majority of loans made are not asset-based. What are those other loans based on? Now, I haven't received an answer, uh, at least a good answer, from any of our listeners uh, as of yesterday, and the exact wording of the answer is less important. So if you feel you have a good answer, just enter it into the chat window, and I will keep an eye on it during the show. We'll find one of the good books or audio books in our library to send you as congratulations, and who knows, you might find a million-dollar bill in that book. Now, incidentally, this show will be one of our multimedia shows, so you'll want to access the slides we have to help you follow the concepts we discussed. Just open another browser window and go to WealthDNA.us website. That's our main website, obviously. Click uh, click on the tab across the top for 2016 shows, and I'm sure you've done that before, but if you're a new listener, you may not have. Click on the tab across the top for 2016 shows, and you'll see this show listed as Upcoming. Obviously, it was upcoming until two minutes ago. Under the show, it says downloadable materials, and you just click on the blue link to the right of it. That will open the slides in your web browser. Now, I didn't realize how long it's been since we did a multimedia show. It's a format we pioneered, and we don't take full advantage of it. So today, we are. Some listeners may be wondering why you should be interested in asset-based lending. Well, recall our show on March 28th when we asked you a basic but critical question. Are you ready for retirement? Now, if you're 30, you might say, I don't need to worry about that, but that is also not true. You see, there are far fewer pensions than there were two to three decades ago. More responsibility for our retirement is on our shoulders, and with interest rates on government debt close to zero, Even investors who have accumulated significant amounts express a concern that those assets may not be sufficient to cover their costs if they or their spouse live well into their 80s, 90s, or 100s, which, of course, we want you to. And, of course, when I say more responsibility for retirement is on our shoulders, I mean your shoulders and ours here at the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We clearly want your retirement to be a great one so you can focus on your family's health, and happiness. Since we plan to help make sure you're wealthy, you have the right insurance in place and running out of money is therefore not a concern. In other words, we plan to have you attain the financial holy grail, having income for life. From my experience, the topics we cover in this series will be the key to achieving the financial holy grail for a high percentage of our listeners. In other words, a very high percentage of the million people we help become millionaires will be due to the opportunities we've covered in this series. The final step in this series is to share with you how various investments and debts should be categorized in your portfolio. It doesn't matter whether you use pen and paper to track your portfolio or use 
Excel, Quicken, or any other accounting software, software excuse me, you can take advantage of the tips we share today. And these same concepts apply equally well for businesses as for individuals. Although if you use a bookkeeper or accountant, you will have to explain the changes you want in the chart of accounts, or you can send them the links so they can listen to the show as well. Accountants have been trained in traditional accounting and have never been exposed to the five parts to a balance sheet, which is our topic today. And that's the problem with accounting another title we considered for this show. Accounting principles assume all assets are equally good and all liabilities are bad, which, by the way, isn't true. So traditional accounting really doesn't help you fully understand which assets are bad and which liabilities are good. And there are some. We won't have a guest joining us, so it will be another good opportunity for you to ask questions and get clarification as how this and prior shows apply to you. Whether you're on the U.S. West Coast or in Arizona where I am and you're sipping a cup of coffee, I hope to not make too much noise doing that, the U.S. East Coast and you're getting ready for lunch, in Europe and just ending your work day, you're somewhere in between or you're listening to the show on the archive of I'll be, I'm sure you'll be glad you joined us for this hour. If you're listening to the archive of the show in, let's say, 2026 or later, you'll be able to look back and see how this series could have helped you increase your wealth by listening in August of 2016 and taking advantage of some of the insights we're cover- we've covered and are covering today. On the Wealth DNA Radio Show, we focus on the fundamentals of investing, providing great ideas for building and protecting your wealth. Today is no exception. As we share ideas on how you could better understand the components of your portfolio, whether it's personal or company finances. I'd like to start each show by sharing a quote to set the tone for today's show's topic, but I couldn't decide between two, so I'll just share both. The first, I don't really care about money. I find money boring and accounting boring, so I'm probably not going to ever make a lot of money. This quote is from Juliana Hatfield, a musician. Now, just don't ask me about her music, since she's obviously not a regular listener to this show. I'm not a regular listener to her music. Now, putting all seriousness aside for a second, here's the second quote. I worked in accounting for two and a half years, realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and decided I was going to give comedy a try. This quote is from Bob Newhart, who really did have a degree in accounting. If you listen to the show, feel free to use the chat window to vote on which you felt was more appropriate, Juliana Hatfield's or Bob Newhart's. And of course, it'll take a little while hearing parts of the show before you might be able to decide. But uh, today is Monday, August 22nd, 2016. It is 9.07 a.m. in Arizona. Oh, I am a little behind schedule. In 18.07 in continental Europe, it's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. And uh, the show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. If you didn't receive a reminder of the show, you should connect with us on Twitter or Facebook where we post reminders. Just connect with The Ronald put together as a single word. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area, for helping us put together and share this information with you. Incidentally, this accounting correction that we'll be talking about became obvious as I worked with them on the TAC program to solve the housing crisis during the Great Recession. 
had Banks and Fannie Mae bought into that concept, the housing crisis could have been solved with far less cost to taxpayers. Will, and of course, my uh, air conditioner turns on. We are, of course, in Arizona, but I forgot to uh, to uh, turn that off for uh, for the hour. So my apologies if you hear a bunch of uh, howling noise above me. Uh, so anyway, we'll touch on that concept as we walk through the five parts to a balance sheet. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show like the other ones in the series, you can find them in the archive. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during the show, and today we should have enough time to handle several either using the chat window below the radio player or you can call in and our producer will share your question or comment with us. Maybe I'll put you on the air. Yeah, call in number 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the screen. Once you get to the show, dial 1 to reach the producer. Since our last show, the U.S. equity markets are a little changed but did hit two new record highs in the meantime bringing it to 10 new highs this year. Today, the U.S. markets are off to a negative start. Asia was mixed. Europe, was, which just closed, is down. And Brazil is down more than 1.5%. A good day to be investing in asset-based lending. Some might say every day is a good day to be an asset-based lender. Now, as I mentioned, our topic today is five parts to a balance sheet. And we debated on an equally descriptive title, The Problem with accounting. Let's start by talking about a few other sources you have available to help you explain this concept. First and foremost, and we will talk about this a little bit, is the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter. In that book, they talk about how some assets are actually liabilities. Assets should put money in your pocket, and liabilities tend to take money out of your pocket. So they talked about redefining some assets as liabilities. Now, I certainly know what they were trying to convey, but by moving items from the asset column to the liability column would be a total violation of basic accounting principles. Now, keep in mind, Sharon Lecter is a CPA. So can you imagine the two of them having a fairly lengthy discussions and arguments about how to convey this idea? Which leads me to the second source for more information on this topic. We did a show back on October 24th of 2011 entitled Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Revisit It. In that show, I try to convey the very positive influence the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad had on personal finance investing and also tried to better explain some of the points they are making in that book, including this confusion on some assets being liabilities. Now, if you are a fairly new listener to the show, you may be surprised that we had shows way back then. Yes, we've been broadcasting this show since the third quarter of 2010. At the beginning of the show, I talked about information we share in this series being relevant 10 years from now. Well, certainly the majority of topics we covered in the, the first six years is also relevant. So I encourage you to listen to those shows. If you go to the slideshare.net website and search for articles done by The Ronald or search the phrase, The Problem with Accounting, you'll find a presentation I did on this topic back in 2013. Today's show will build on that presentation and encourage you to download a copy of the slides from wealthdna.us. So if you haven't done that, go to wealthdna.us, find this show, and right under it there are some downloadable slides which you can use to follow along. It really does help. 
Other sources of information on this topic can be found by researching the TACT program, T-A-C-T, along with my name or BI Solutions Corp. This is the joint work I mentioned related to solving the housing and banking crisis, which would be another search phrase you might want to try, housing and banking crisis. At the end of the slides for this show, we include a list of books which reinforce other aspects of today's show and are great books for any investor to read. Now, hopefully you have a copy of the slides open or you're opening them, so I'll reference the slide number as we proceed. And I do have that open as well as my chat window, as well as my notes, so uh, I should be confused totally today. Uh, hopefully I don't spill coffee all over myself. But let's go right to slide two to better understand why we put this show together. It's kind of the motivation. First, not many investors or even business owners had formal training in accounting, so they tend to rely on accounts to provide financial statements. So when we think of our portfolio, we also tend to put it in that same standard format accountants use. But as we'll discover today, that can be misleading. Yes, the num numbers may be in a standard format that your banker can understand, but they're not necessarily as useful in managing your portfolio as they could be. Hopefully, by the end of the show, you realize it won't take a lot of work to change the categories the numbers are in to make them far more useful to you. And that's our goal. In my brief list of resources I just provided, you'll notice that I didn't mention any accounting textbooks, but don't worry. I won't suggest making any changes that are violation of the generally accepted accounting principles, often known as GAAP. The suggestions will merely complement and enhance your balance sheet. Now, slide three provides the roadmap for this show. We'll start out talking about Rich Dad Poor Dad a little bit more, and we'll end with some cautions and suggestions related to managing debt. On slide four, uh, so you can follow along, um, I'll be talking a little bit about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, and there on that page, I listed some of the bullet points I want to focus on. Obviously, they covered a lot in that book, wonderful book. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'll touch on some of these corrections or enhancements I suggest. One of the lessons is that all debt and liabilities are bad, which is just too general a statement to be true. Second is if you have a job, and they turn the word job into an acronym for just over broke. Certainly the majority of people with a job are barely earning enough to cover their expenses, and just as importantly, their entire income is taxed when they work a jet job. They can't take deductions for the miles they drive, the hours they travel, or even the clothes they buy to comply with the company's dress code, whether it's formal or informal. The third lesson is that unlike a job, where you work for money, passive income is working is money working for you, which we've mentioned several times in the show, and I totally agree with that. The, a key point in the book is related to forming a corporation, and of course in these days we use an LLC or a limited liability company just as well, or maybe even better for all your business or income generating activities. When they wrote the book, that wasn't really an option. The key reason is you're then taxed on your net income versus on the gross income. In other words, income left after deducting your expenses. The final point we'll touch on during the show is the one that causes the most confusion, where they stated some assets are actually liabilities. 
Incidentally, I have not found a way to move assets to the liability column without violating accounting principles. So it would require an additional balance sheet for your purposes, plus the one for your banker that you would submit as part of your tax return, if it is a company tax return. But obviously, we have a better solution. And let's jump ahead to slide five. I remind you there that... uh, what about what we're about to cover is not covered in any accounting textbook, nor will your CPA suggest it, and I guess you know why. Incidentally, if it wasn't for that confusing statement in Rich Dad Poor Dad, I may also have never recognized there are far, five parts to a balance sheet. Much of my education and most of my corporate experience was in finance, so like Sharon Lecter, I also had a disadvantage. Yes, There are times that formal education and business experience can be a disadvantage. We learn a way of thinking or problem-solving that can dull our curiosity, hurt our logical thinking, or even hold us back from using good old common sense. So let's jump to slide six. And there is the first representation most investors think of in their mind's eye related to balance sheets. They picture two columns with assets on the left, the good part of their portfolio, and most financial advisors would point out that those assets include stocks, bonds, cash, and your home. Those investors then picture the liabilities on the right, and of course those are the bad part of the portfolio. Well, sort of. They're the debts we need to pay off. Again, financial advisors would mention your mortgage, credit card debt, car loans, and possibly margin debt. For those of you who wonder what's wrong with this balance sheet, probably already jumped ahead to slide seven. So let's go ahead and join them. Hopefully, in looking at slide seven, the oversimplification becomes very obvious. In addition to the liabilities on the right side of the balance sheet, we also have the equity or net worth section. And most people will tell you that net worth is indeed the most important measure of your portfolio. But again, before the end of the show, we'll correct that statement. The basic accounting concept that liabilities must equal assets confuses most people. Although accounting rules require that uh, the left side equals the right side, uh, this makes this good section kind of invisible in that uh, statement, this good section called equity or net worth. That's what makes the left equal to the right. Now, the easiest way to understand this basic concept, let's go back to the very beginning of your financial career, or mine, they're probably similar. Let's say you got paid $5 for mowing the lawn during the summer, or maybe for washing the cars all summer. And by the way, when I was a kid, 5 bucks was a pretty good um, pay for mowing the lawn several weeks, not for one week. And you decided to open a bank account to deposit that money. At that point, your assets were $5. And since you had no debt, your equity section also had $5. Your balance sheet is balanced, and life started out well. All assets and equity, no no true liabilities, no debt. Now, of course, soon after that, very good start you had, life happens. And soon you're spending more than you're earning, and debts accumulate. 
fortunately, you and most of our listeners learned that you need to save a portion of your income so you could build your net worth or rebuild it, quite frankly. Okay, so this version of the balance sheet has worked for individuals and companies for thousands of years. What's wrong with having these three sections? Well, this is where Kiyosaki and Lecter's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, really helped to jog my thinking. We discussed the fact that some uh, assets we don't um, – let's try that again. We discussed the fact that some assets we own don't bring positive cash flow. They're actually a negative cash flow, taking money out of our pocket to maintain or retain their asset. Uh, and that, on that note – let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you missed some prior shows in this section, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or you can follow The Ronald with no spaces on Twitter or Facebook. Let's thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area, for helping us put together and share this information with you. Now, during the radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. The easiest to start a chat in the area below the radio player or call in 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the screen, and then dial 1 to reach our producer. Our topic is five parts to a balance sheet. We also have a downloadable set of slides to help you follow along and to serve as a reference in the future. So given Kiyosaki and Lecter's prodding, let me introduce you to the best balance sheet version, which is shown on our slide 8. You'll see it has five sections. It uses the accounting principles that worked so well to date. Even assets with negative cash flow need to remain on the left side of the balance sheet, so we leave them there but we want to differentiate these bad assets from the good assets. The years you've learned me use the term, you've heard me use the term IGA, and just as a reminder, that stands for Income Generating Assets. And those clearly are the good assets, and we want to have more of them. The other topic of uh, type of asset, excuse me, the type of asset that Kiyosaki and Lecter were referring to as more like liabilities are toxic assets. Now, since we recently lived through the Great Recession, you probably heard that term when talking about banks. So let's use the example of banks for a few minutes and the bank assets that might fit into each category. If I have a mortgage on my home and uh, I'm making all of my regular monthly payments, then that mortgage is an IGA or a performing loan for the bank. And yes, it is a liability for me, but we'll come back to that. We're focusing on the bank at the moment. Incidentally, based on the amount of IGAs on a bank's balance sheet, they can go to the Fed or the appropriate central bank in that country and borrow against those IGAs to acquire more IGAs. Since they can borrow today at rates below one quarter of a percent and lend to an owner-occupant at three and a half percent, they have quite a bit of financial benefit to doing that. Now, if I default on my mortgage, as millions of people did during the Great Recession, that mortgage is no longer an IGA for the bank. It becomes a toxic asset to them. They aren't getting cash flow. They actually have to spend money to make sure the property taxes are paid and insurance is in force. Additionally, they have to create accounting reserves which lower their ability to borrow. 
there are other toxic acids that a bank owns that are less obvious. These include the actual bank buildings, which cost money rather than bringing positive cash flow. Also, all the desks, partitions, and other furniture in the building. Now, you might argue that without those buildings, they couldn't generate income. But with the advent of Internet banking, it's become more obvious that the fancy building and wooden desk is not critical for generating income. They are toxic acids. So hopefully you're starting to see how subdividing the assets into these two categories improves on the basic balance sheet. But we don't stop there. Kiyosaki and Lecter also stated that all liabilities are bad, which I disagree with. Let's start with the bank example for a little while a little while longer, and let's split the liability section to also good and bad debt. And uh, with that, the money a bank borrows from the Fed, other central bank, or depositors at a very low rate in order to acquire more IGAs is actually good debt. It's allowing them to grow, increase their income, and ultimately increase their net worth. And as they add more IGAs, they can take on more of this low cost debt. To grow their IGAs, interesting, this might start sounding like a good business model for some of you. And yes, it can work for individuals and companies as well. Now, what are bad liabilities in the case of banks? Well, how about the mortgage loans they take to build that fancy new toxic asset, that new bank building? Certainly, that money is being borrowed to expand the number of toxic assets. And this became obvious during the Great Recession as banks stopped doing mortgage loans and thus had many empty buildings. Of course, they added more staff, often in different centralized locations, to handle the foreclosures and sales of all of those toxic assets since they weren't equipped to handle that. And today, most of those buildings are now empty, the buildings they added just a few years ago. So any debt they have on buildings that are costing them money, I would consider bad debt. Incidentally, you'll see a continuing reduction in the number and size of bank buildings since banksters have learned about the five parts of the balance sheet the hard way in the last 10 years. And that's an advantage of being in the Wealth DNA radio listener. You get to learn from other people's mistakes rather than the hard way. So let's switch to your own balance sheet and talk about examples both IGAs and toxic assets you might own. And of course, if you jump to slide nine, you will see I've listed several. As your financial advisor already pointed out, these include stocks, bonds, and cash, but there are so many more. Commodities, investment properties, mortgage notes on properties, and other asset-based loans, as well as other alternative investments, which we've talked about in a past series. Notice I left out CDs and bank deposits. Yes, they are IGAs, but they happen to have really bad returns, so I I have a real hard time talking about them as IGAs. Now, certainly you don't have any toxic assets, right? Or do you? Probably the biggest toxic asset in your portfolio is your personal home. And next are your cars, furniture, clothing. Many people argue that those are all critical to earning your income, but you could rent a home and accomplish the same. You could rent a car, take public transport, ride a bike, carpool, and certainly a $150 suit bought on sale will be equally acceptable in the office 
as will a $500 or $1,000 Armani or Gucci. So yes, all those extra amounts you spend to impress others who really don't care is money invested in toxic assets. I won't even get into jet skis or the hole in the water into which they pour money, also known as a boat. I'll add one more toxic asset, loans you made without collateral. Whether they, the borrower is actually paying you some interest or not, you're better off treating them as toxic assets, so you don't have to recategorize them when they go into default. Also known as, I don't quite have the money to pay you back yet. So, for those of you with the slides in front of you, I included slide 10, which is kind of a graphical depiction of a bad bank's balance sheet, one with about as much in toxic assets as in performing assets, or IGAs. And slide 11 shows the contrast of a much healthier balance sheet. And incidentally, the TACT program I mentioned earlier was developed to convert those toxic assets to the performing to performing assets, which we'll talk about for your portfolio a little later. So now let's focus on the liabilities section of your balance sheet, which, of course, is shown on slide 12. I'll start with the bad, which I guess is the equivalent of eating your vegetables before eating the filet mignon or your fish dinner. The most obvious and the first to pay off is high interest credit card debt. I've often mentioned on this show that the very best yielding, low-risk investment is to pay off that credit card debt. So one of the highest priority payments is to pay those credit cards off during the 30-day grace period. If you're in doubt, try paying less than the full amount just once, and you'll be paying interest on the entire balance of that card for the coming months. No grace period on new expenditures. Now, bad debt includes any debt with an interest rate above the return on your investments, ROI. If you don't know what your ROI is, use 7% as a threshold, at least currently in 2016. So if you're listening to the show in 2030, you'll either have to compute your ROI percentage or send me an email. I'll give you my updated threshold. I also include any debt, whether a loan or a lease on what I'd refer to as toys, like that boat, jet ski, ARV, or even the extra-large screen TV. Note, there is one exception to this. If you plan to buy these toys anyway, and you get an interest-free loan from the company selling it to you, that's not necessarily bad debt. Yes, it's just a toxic asset with good debt. At least the money you would have spent up front can be invested in IGAs in the meantime. Now, if you didn't have the money and you needed the debt, obviously, that was bad debt on a toxic asset. Okay, so what are some examples of good debt? One example that no one has ever argued about is a mortgage on an investment property. Even if you're a really lousy landlord and barely earning enough to cover the mortgage payment, taxes, and insurance, you're growing your net worth each month as you make principal payments on that mortgage. And there is some chance the property will actually appreciate over time, which, of course, in itself will not buy a cup of coffee today, but someday will increase your net worth. Now, in general, good debt is any debt with an interest rate below the return on your investments. If in doubt, use my 7% as that threshold. Note, the mortgage on your home is also a good debt, since it is at a low interest rate. It allows you to retain or add 
GAs. If you paid cash for your home, it would deplete a lot of your IGAs. Well, that's tough on you. It would deplete a lot of your IGAs and more on that topic shortly. Now, as is often the case, are there some liabilities when you ask the question, is it good or bad, that the correct answer is depends? Well, my best example is car loans. If you really need to buy a different car, then using low-cost debt is actually good. But if you decided to buy a different car because they had low-cost debt available, then it's bad debt, just like it would be on a toy. Now, when you read the book, The Millionaire Next Door, The Millionaire Mind by Dr. Uh, Thomas Stanley, you'll realize that the richest among the millionaires are UCPBs. I have to go back and, and, and rehear that phrase when they used it. Um, I, I do the audiobook, of course. And that stands for used car prone buyers. And if you're wondering, yes, I walk the talk. Now, on this topic, let me digress just a little bit and share a tip you can use in your portfolio tracking, which we'll talk a lot more about. The car you own is in the toxic assets section. And as you update that spreadsheet every six months, how do you account for the value of your car? Does it stay the same? How much does it go down? It certainly doesn't go up. The rule of thumb I suggest is to enter the purchase price into your balance sheet soon after buying it. Then, at the next six-month mark, devalue the car by 10% and continue to devalue it by 10% every six months. Now, notice I'm using the term devalue, not depreciate, which is, which is an accounting concept, but you're, you're looking at it from a pure value view, viewpoint. It's going down about 10% every six months. Now, many people, and you might be one of them, will argue that the model they buy holds its value far better than a typical car, so 10% would be overstating the devaluation. Well, I've tested this on cars I've owned for 10 or 15 years, and it works pretty well, even over a long horizon. It may actually be too conservative in the first year. It may be too aggressive by year 10. As with any rule of thumb I share, it's a good starting point. But if you don't like uh, using mine, go ahead and check the market value every six months if you have the time. Now, the other reason this devaluation calculation can be useful is the annual cost of ownership of a car is merely the total of maintenance costs per year, which you know from your receipts, and this devaluation per year. So you'll have very little maintenance cost in the first two when you buy that new $30,000 vehicle but your annual devaluation will be 5700 So even if I pay $2,000 per year, which is pretty extravagant, to maintain a 10-year-old vehicle, I'm doing well financially since the devalue is only $700 per year. And after all, they're both toxic assets. Let me climb out of that rabbit hole for a moment and get back to the far five parts of the balance sheet. Sorry for the digression, but hopefully there's some useful little tips in there. Um, so uh, if you, you jump to slide 13, I'll just uh, summarize. We have covered what we learned from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and the resulting five parts to a balance sheet. And, of course, on slide 14, I show you those five parts again. 
And just to remind you of the five key sections, since I want to focus on, uh, so I'm showing you that, that slide again so you don't have to jump back. Since I want to focus on the two important topics that are next on our roadmap, paying off the mortgage on that toxic asset called your home and how you can increase the amount of IGAs. So many people are 100% convinced that paying off their mortgage is the critical uh, thing to do for wealth building. Well, it's not true. Uh, but why is it they believe that? And they're absolutely convinced, well, that probably the best thing for me to do is just to share the turkey story again, which I've done in prior shows. And that, of course, takes us to slide 15. Little Susie's in the kitchen with mom or dad, if you prefer, and she or he is preparing the turkey day dinner, or Thanksgiving day, I should say. I'm obviously short, shortening it here. Just before putting the turkey into the roasting pan, mom or dad tips the turkey on the cutting board, cuts off the tail, and as she or he puts it in the oven, Susie asks why she cuts off the tail. Mom, of course, gives the very scientific answer we give most kids. Well, that's how you bake a turkey. Roast a turkey, I guess, would be the more proper term. You can see how much I do it. You always cut off the tail. But why, Susie insists? Well, that's how my mother, your grandma, showed me to do it. And her turkey was always good. Maybe it's because of the fat in the turkey tail. Susie is a regular listener to the Wealthy and A radio show. She didn't feel that was a very good explanation, so she asked, what did Grandma tell you about why she cuts off the tail? Gee, I really don't remember what she told me. But we need to call her anyway since it's Thanksgiving Day, so why don't we ask her? After the usual holiday greetings and chit-chat, Mom mentions that Susie wants to know why you cut the tail off the turkey before putting it in the oven. Well, says Grandma, that's simple. That's the way a turkey is roasted, and that's how my mother taught me. But why, Susie insists. Gee, Grandma says, I really don't remember what my mother told me. But Susie insisted they call great-grandma to find out. Mom was a bit skeptical, knowing the great-grandma's memory isn't so great these days. But it is Thanksgiving Day, and we really should call her anyway. Well, the same greetings and chit-chat, and then Susie's question. Well, great-grandma says, if I didn't cut off the tail, it wouldn't fit in the roasting pan. It wouldn't fit in the oven. Well, very clearly, ovens and roasting pans have gotten much bigger. And turkeys really haven't grown much since then. But it took Susie, an inquisitive wealthy a radio show listener, to get to the real truth. There is no longer a reason to cut off the tail, as there was many, many years ago. So what does that have to do with your mortgage, you might ask? You've probably heard from your parents that it's important to pay off your mortgage. Because they heard it from their parents. Well, back in your parents' or grandparents' time, around the time of the Great Depression, mortgages were callable. So if the bank needed cash to meet withdrawal requests, they could call you and ask you to pay off the mortgage by next week. Or if they really liked you, they might give you a month. You might want to pull out a copy of your mortgage, and you'll find it's no longer callable. As long as you're making all the payments in time, there's no need to pay it off early. You see, back in the Great Depression, many people lost their homes due to these calls, not because they weren't making payments. There were a few exceptions. The most notable of them was the Hilton family. Their hotels had such high mortgages that banks preferred to close on foreclose on people with 50 or 80% loan-to-value before they would 
foreclose on Hilton's properties, which had 100 or 150% loan-to-value. The banks wouldn't recoup all their money. Now, I'll continue this mortgage saga as part of the next key discussion on obtaining more IGAs, which starts on slide 16. Just a reminder, IGA stands for Income Generating Assets, and those are the assets that help you build your wealth and provide cash flow. If you are paying off your mortgage faster than you need to, you're using some of the funds that could have been invested in IGAs. Mortgages are among the cheapest forms of debt, and they're long-term, so they're a great source of funds that you can use for generating higher returns. And our objective should be obtain more IGA, so paying off that mortgage is counterproductive. But what can you do to increase the amount of IGAs you have? Well, the most obvious is to save more. I didn't say it was the easiest, it's just the most obvious. And to invest those savings in IGAs. Related to that, of course, is spending less. When I shared the PIST principle, we refer to that as simplification. In other words, you, if you must buy toxic assets, spend less on them. Spend less on stuff that will eventually fill your garage and you'll gladly dispose of in a few years for pennies on the dollar. If you really do want to buy some of that stuff, maybe you could buy it from somebody else's garage sale. There seem to have, uh, they seem to have at least plenty of barely used exercise bikes or other exercise equipment, at least each of the garage sales I go to. The third method requires a little explanation, and that's converting toxic assets to IGAs. And remember, this is what the TACT program was designed to do for banks. If the toxic asset is a loan you made to a relative with no collateral, maybe you could offer them a lower interest rate if they back the loan with some collateral. If they don't pay you any interest, maybe offer to lower the principal of the loan in order to add collateral. Suggest a second loan on their house or a loan on their car. Now, if your borrower starts to sweat with these suggestions, they might decide it's just better off to pay the loan than to put up with this, which is great. That would allow you to invest more in IGAs. If you own a second home, you could convert one of them into a rental property. Or how about holding a garage sale or listing some of those toxic assets on eBay, Craigslist, or similar sites? Well, I'll continue the list, but let me, before we do that, in case you just tuned in, you're listening to the Waltania Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. If you missed prior shows, the archive is on wealthdna.us. Parts, five parts to a balance sheet is what we're talking about today, and specifically your balance sheet. By the way, we haven't mentioned T-accounts, debits, or credits even once. Uh-oh, I guess I just violated that now. Let's thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corporate Residential Real Estate Fund and the Phoenix Scottsdale area for helping us put together and share this information with you. Their TAC program, along the comments in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, inspired this con- concept. If you just tuned in, you'll want to go back to the beginning of the show soon after the uh, after we finish. The same link will take you there. Our producers really make it easy for you. And so far, we've covered some concepts from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We shared the five parts to a balance sheet. We've discouraged our listeners for paying off their mortgage, and we're now finishing up the tips on obtaining more IGAs, which are critical to wealth building. So let's continue our list of building up. Um, 
more IGAs or obtaining more IGAs. That's on page 17 or slide 17, excuse me. If you have some bad debt, for example, high interest loan you use to buy a rental property for cash, now that you have some history with that property and you don't need the funding in one week, talk to a bankster or credit union about refinancing the debt to a lower interest rate. While you're at it, you might want to ask about increasing the amount of the loan, which would increase your cash flow, and maybe you'd have more funds available to buy more IGAs. Now, hopefully I've convinced you that paying off your mortgage is a bad idea when it comes to obtaining more IGAs, so let's extend that concept with what I refer to as take and invest, namely to take out more low-interest loans for long periods of time and then invest those loans those funds, excuse me, and more IGAs. The obvious example is to buy another investment property. But you may be able to increase the amount of your current mortgages and thus have more funds to invest in IGAs. And don't forget about those 0% credit card offers. Your shredder will pay you nothing, but they're a great source of very low-interest loans. Now, I realize that at least one listener out there is will be skeptical about this idea of taking on more debt to have more IGAs, but go back to my discussion on how banks make money. They use OPM, other people's money, borrowing low-interest loans from others to invest in more IGAs that earn far more than the interest they're paying on those loans. So rather than being the provider of OPM to banks, Use their business model to obtain more IGs in your portfolio instead of theirs. Now, if, you've, uh, if you're following along with the slides provided, we're moving to slide 18. Uh, for some of you who are uncomfortable with the idea of taking on debt to have more funds to invest in IGAs, you'll find some support in Dr. Thomas Stanley's research. Most millionaires don't have much debt. But there are, of course, a number of reasons for that. First of all, as the amount of IGAs grows, they generate more and more cash flow, which can be used to pay off debt faster. And, of course, many of those millionaires also heard the turkey story, or the mortgage equivalent from their parents who heard it from their parents. And in most cases, those parents and grandparents weren't wealthy, but it worked for them, so they passed on that wisdom. Many of those millionaires are not wealthy because they're good at managing money, but because they're good at building a business and being frugal. In other words, they follow the PISS principle their entire life. And when I say that, of course, you remember it's P-I-I-S-S. That's an acronym. Earning money, saving it, investing it, and living a simple life. No extravagant houses or cars, no extravagant clothes or expensive toys. Although I didn't list um, Douglas Andrews' book, Missed Fortune, in the list at the end of the slides, he also shares a very valuable point. There are two ways to pay off a loan. I can take the cash and pay it off. In other words, to have the, or the other way, and this is my preferred, is to have the funds available that I can use to pay off the loan at any time. So the day I take a loan, low-interest loan and invest it in IGAs, that loan is effectively paid off. I have the funds available to pay it off today, tomorrow, or next week. But if my IGAs are earning more than I'm paying on that loan, then I'll wait. And at the end of the 30 years, or however long that loan is, I have the full principal value in IGAs, and the loan is paid off. Let me restate that. It's an important point. If I borrow $100,000 and invest it wisely, I will still have that $100,000 in my portfolio 30 years later 
when the loan is paid off. Just run the numbers and you'll see this works. By the way, picture gets even better as inflation and interest rates rise. They don't have much to go down. Now back to our roadmap on slide 19. shows you what we've covered and our two final topics. Who should pay off all their debt and managing the risk of debt? So let's move right into slide 20, which is paying off debt. Although I'm a firm believer and active user of OPM, I recognize it's not appropriate for everyone. And let me accentuate that it is not appropriate for everyone. It's probably suitable for all of our listeners, but it looks if I look at the population at large, which includes our investors, but obviously a much larger group, our listeners, excuse me, I would say about 20 to 25% should use these principles. In other words, 75 to 80% of the population is better off paying enough debt than focusing on adding more IGAs. So how do we decide who fits in this 75 to 80%? Well, overall, it's people with low wealth DNA. It's people who don't have good financial discipline. Whenever they have some cash in their pocket, they feel they need to spend it. Having those people take on more debt is like offering dessert to someone who can't control their weight. Clearly, principal, uh, excuse me, let's try that again. Clearly, people who have a higher cost of debt than they earn on those IGAs should be paying off their debt first. Just remember the very highest yielding, lowest risk investment is paying off high interest credit cards. Now, another indicator is someone with negative net worth. Unless they have very solid income and pay off that debt faster than required, they should probably focus on paying off debt. Now, I promised you a better indicator that you could track the net worth, and I'll do that as part of this final topic, managing the risk of debt, which is on slide 21. We often refer to debt or leverage as a two-edged sword. When used as it should be, the risk managed properly, it cuts the time to becoming a millionaire. But when something goes wrong, the other side of the blade can cut your chances of ever becoming a millionaire. It's a two-edged sword. My number one tip for managing debt is the same number one tip I tell all active real estate investors. That's to have cash reserves. The reason those cash reserves are so critical is that the monthly payments on your debt need to be paid even if your investment uh, declines in value or the cash flow declines. Let me pick the obvious example of the landlord who still has to make the mortgage payment, even if his tenant moves out and leaves a mess that needs to be fixed. There are periods of negative cash flow despite the fact that rental property is one of the best tools for wealth building. Similarly, if you take out a larger mortgage than needed so you can invest the extra into IGAs, you still need to make the mortgage payment even if those IGAs decline in value or you lose your job. I also suggest working with advisors or experts who will keep you out of high-risk investments that are not compatible with your risk tolerance. For example, if you're a retiree and dependent on the cash flow from your portfolio to pay your bills each month, you'll want to stick with bonds, minimal risk private mortgages, utility stocks, and maybe some REITs, and forget about trying to buy shares in the next Microsoft, Apple, or Google. And within your bonds, you'd want to be high-quality bonds, not high-yield, which 
used to be called junk bonds for a good reason. And in your private mortgage loans, stick with those of guaranteed monthly payments, not those that pay higher interest rates, but the interest payments stop in the event of the borrower's default. One of the most valuable tools for managing risk we've discussed on our first, uh, uh, for the first time on, on a show way back in September, September 26th of 2011. It was titled, How Are You Doing? And also, you can't manage what you don't measure. If you haven't already, then develop a spreadsheet which has your portfolio or balance sheet and add a column every six months. This allows you to compare versus six months ago. For this, using Quicken or other management software is fine, but you really need to track the totals every six months side by side to see how much they grow or shrink. That's why I prefer a spreadsheet for this. To put the important concepts from this show into action, you'll want to subdivide the asset section into IGAs and toxic assets and subtotal them separately. Likewise, you'll want to subdivide the liability section into good versus bad debt. Now, even if you don't think you have bad debt, you really need to have that section to review each debt every six months to make sure it really is still good debt. With that spreadsheet, you'll be able to see how much your IGAs have grown over the last two years. And I do suggest uh, doing most comparisons over a two-year horizon to kind of smooth out the unusual occurrences and cyclicality. You'll also see if your toxic assets are shrinking or at least growing far less than your IGAs. You want to see if your bad debt is shrinking compared to your good debt. The other nice thing about the spreadsheet, just like a balance sheet, it's easier to do some what-ifs. What if six months from now I added a $100,000 low-interest loan and I invested that money in IGAs? How would that affect my key indicators? It won't have any immediate effect on your net worth, but it may improve several other important key indicators. Key indicators like the growth rate of your IJs over the last two years versus the growth rate of your good debt over the last two years. And I promised I would share a key indicator that's far better than net worth. It's your net IGAs, which is simply your total IGAs minus your total debt. Let's talk about some examples. Let's say you've started out uh, in your career and your only asset is a $300,000 home which, as you know, is a toxic asset. And your only liability is a $250,000 mortgage on that home. Because that mortgage is low-interest loan, it would be in the good asset section. Your net worth would be 50000 So basically, you have some red on the uh, asset side of the balance sheet, and you have all green on the liability or the right side. But when you compute your net IGAs, you'll be far less excited than you were on your net worth, since that's minus 250000 Recall, you have zero in IGAs and 250000 of debt. You either need to save more to, de- to develop a cash cushion or pay down that debt. My preference would be to save up a cash cushion. Your IGAs would jump up from $0, and every dollar saved would improve your net IGA position. By using just net worth as an indicator, you might have felt comfortable, but then net IGA would make you appropriately uncomfortable without that cash cushion. What happens if you lose your job? You can't make the payments, and trust me, no bank will give you a home equity loan when you don't have a job. Try it if you'd like. 
What if you took out a home equity loan when everything was going well? You would have $50,000 a night up to, you know, it depends on what the bank will provide you, but let's say they would provide you a full 50000 of equity uh, as a home equity loan. That would be in your IGAs, and you would still have 50000 in net worth and still minus 250 in net IGAs, but you'd have that 50000 IGA cushion. So if you lose your job, you would have that 50000 cushion to help avoid losing your home. Versus the debt-averse person who has no cushion and likely to lose their home and all their net worth in a foreclosure. Choice is yours, and now you have some additional tools to help you manage that risk. So where do you keep those cash reserves? Certainly not in the stock market. Money markets and CDs are okay. BI solutions, MB3s, and short-term asset-based loans are my preference. However you choose to invest them, make sure you have cash reserves even if you have no debt. There will be rainy days, and there may even be some flooding. The next slide, number 22, uh, is a list of books that I mentioned that uh, if you haven't read them, you absolutely want to read them. If you have read them, you'll want to reread them. They support some of the concepts we talked about today. And when talking about who should pay off their debt, I mentioned that my overall test is whether they have low-wealth DNA. So on slide 23, I share the quote from Zig Ziglar, which serves as a simple test for wealth DNA. There are others. Now, hopefully I've covered the five key components of the balance sheet and just as importantly showed why the traditional two or three section balance sheet is just not sufficient for managing your portfolio. Likewise, just because your net worth is growing does not mean you're adding IGAs, which are key to wealth building. I promised we would not make this a boring lecture and you would leave with some specific tools you can implement to better manage your portfolio. The rest is up to you. All you have to do is use the downloadable slides and re-listen to the last 15 minutes to implement these changes in your balance sheet or asset tracking spreadsheet. Recall I also promised to share the most common form of backing for loans. Since I didn't get a good answer and I did check the chat window, the collateral is, are you ready, the general credit of the borrower or issuer. In other words, a personal or company a personal or company-backed loan, and that person or company is putting their creditworthiness and assets at risk. Even if the debt has the backing of a AAA-plus rated company, I still prefer assets. If I need to sue them to recover the money I lent them, I'm likely to spend a lot on legal fees, whereas with an asset-backed loan, I can seize that asset. Notice that when banks lend you money, they want both asset backing and personal guarantees. Maybe they know something more than the average investor about people's creditworthiness. Now, one of the best things you can do to minimize the risk of running out of money during retirement is to tune into the Wealthina radio show. Regular listeners know that our objective is to share the fundamentals of investing, provide great ideas for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to help you and one million other people become millionaires. Today's show is a good example. We will be making some changes in the next few months, so you won't, we won't be airing every second and fourth Monday. We have some invitations out to do guests who would talk about specific issues women face as investors. 
after that, I'll be taking a sabbatical to focus more on writing and doing some live seminars, primarily in the Phoenix area. We will send out some invitations to you and others as well. So after the next live shows, I encourage you to go back to our archive and listen to two shows per month. You'll pick up some tips you either never heard or that you missed the first time you heard them. I certainly hope the two quotes were uh, useful and relevant to our topic. The first from Juliana Hatfield, the musician. I don't really care about money. I find money boring and accounting boring, so I'm probably not going to ever make a lot of money. And the second from Bob Newhart. I worked in accounting for two and a half years, realized that I wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life, and decided I was going to give comedy a try. Well, Bob, comedy worked for you. If you missed part of today's show, or if you want to recommend it to some friends, the link in the announcement will take you to the archive version. And, of course, you'll also find the full list of past shows there on WealthDNA.us. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area, for helping us put together this show. The next Wealth DNA radio show is planned for the second Monday of September. That is Monday, September 12th at 9 a.m. Arizona time, same place, same time. We plan to be talking about women as investors, and trust me, guys, you'll learn as much as the women do. Maybe more. The full line of guests and topics is on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows there, too. If you have comments or questions about this show or others, if you haven't received my emails reminding you about this show, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us, or follow the Ronald on Facebook or Twitter, Remember, no space, the Ronald. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and adding some new sections to your balance sheet. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.